Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom. We are in a time of war. It is something you're going to have to remark upon, make some observations about. And that's what I'd like to do. Just continue a little bit from last week and, and maybe take a different tack. There's there's so many ways of approaching things like this, and I don't know that there's a right way or a wrong way, especially, you know, there's, like I say, there's so many ways of looking at it. You can look at it prophetically. You can look at it from the standpoint of the Torah as the as the mida, as the measurement. You you want to definitely be sensitive, absolutely, to the victims, to their families. You don't want to be a Job's comforter when people are grieving. That's not really when they can handle the reasons to why. If there even is an answer that we would be willing to accept as human beings seeing what we're able to see from this standpoint. It might be that the those why answers can, couldn't even completely be understood anyway and until the transformation of the body and the mind at the resurrection. And, and people are in different stages of trying to understand it. You know, the it, it seems like the closer you were to where the events actually took place, the more trauma there's going to be. And and people deal with trauma in different ways. So, like I say, I don't know that there's a right way or wrong way of approaching this, but I think an important thing for us to think about is what can be done now. Maybe things could have been done before. There's always going to be Monday morning quarterbacking. Again, there's there's always going to be the Job's comforters. And not that there wasn't a time to ask some questions of Job. Uh, it just, it wasn't the right time. Right. And and so the, the comforters were accused of talking about things they didn't really understand. Any more than Job understood why he was going through what he went through, they didn't understand what he was going through. But as human beings, of course, you know, we get this absolutely from the Torah and the prophets. When calamity comes, if you don't ask why, then you risk repeating a mistake. You risk repeating an error, an oversight, a sin, even. And so that's not really what we want to do today. Uh, we don't want to critique and say what went wrong here. What we can do is maybe add some hope, even though things can't be undone. We could add some hope looking forward. And so I'd like to just go over the newsletter that I sent out yesterday. And maybe even in the process, it'll unpack some strange thoughts, maybe from scripture, uh, a couple of strange things from scripture that kind of leave you scratching your head sometimes, like, why did they say that? Or why is that a commandment? But maybe there's something to think about. So often, especially if you have a church background, your thinking can tend to get locked into the salvation question. You know, it's it's like we were entirely programmed to lead people to Yeshua, but rarely were we programmed to continue to teach them how to walk in that salvation. It was all about getting them in, and then we just kind of dropped them. And so often when we talk about commandments, deeds of righteousness, because our, our vision was so limited, we tend to somehow see the, the deeds and the works of righteousness 
that we can do because of Yeshua is somehow opposed to the grace of our salvation. And, and we know that's not true. We know there's a balance that faith without works is dead. And so I'd like to look at, at maybe something that is not part of any salvation conversation. Let's just make an assumption, all right? Let's make an assumption that the salvation of a particular person, the judgment of a particular person, that's in the hands of Hashem. That's in the hands of Adonai, not ours. Let's just make an assumption that we won't understand everything. But what we do understand is that there are appointed times for things. And of course, we know that this war kicked off on the last day of Sukkot, which is the eighth day, Shemini Atzeret. And it's a day of rejoicing in the Torah, uh, in the land. There's an extra day in the diaspora, but in the land, it was a day to wake up and rejoice in the Torah. And instead, many people woke up to something much different. And even if that's not the reality you woke up to, that reality affected you. If you were in, anywhere in the land, it affected you. And so, one thing you do during Sukkot is you read the book of Ecclesiastes. You read Kohelet. Kohelet is the preacher. Kahal is a congregation or assembly. And then Kohelet, the preacher. And uh, it's thought to be written by King Solomon. Very different in flavor um, than the Song of Songs, which we've been following uh, as kind of the guideline for the footsteps of Messiah, but not too different from the book of Proverbs. Definitely a lot gloomier you know, and on the gloomy scale, it's way, I mean, it's probably off the scale on gloomy. And so while you're rejoicing in the Torah during Sukkot, it's offset by reading these really, like, just everything is pointless. As you're reading, as you go through the chapters, like everything's vanity, everything's pointless. What does it matter? But then the conclusion of everything is, you know, fear out on I, keep his commandments. And one of the I guess probably the most famous passage out of Ecclesiastes is a class Ecclesiastes 3.8. It says, there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And, you know, we can believe in coincidences. I mean, it was just a coincidence that this is the assigned reading for Sukkot. And this is exactly what happened on the last day of Sukkot is that the time for war had arrived. And you know, because it is a time of rejoicing in the Torah, you know, to conclude Kohelet with, you know, in the end, the sum of everything is this, fear Adonai and keep his commandments, uh, rejoicing in his commandments. But, you know, was there a soul in the land of Israel that could rejoice on October the 7th? It was a challenge. What was that song? Can't remember who sang it. I think it was, a. can't think of the author's name, but there's a passage in the song. It says it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. It's a hallelujah coming from a different place, but it's the same word. And so with reading that each day that we were on the tour, it was as if our hearts were being prepared for a time for war. Not that, you know, it wasn't somewhat of a surprise to wake up to that. Uh, we always hear rumbling when we go at Sukkot. There's always something brewing at Sukkot. And that's not unexpected. Uh, but this, of course, is way off the charts on a, a holiday disturbance. So it was as if we were being prepared for what we would wake up to. But it I don't know that it prepared any of us for the information that began to filter down to us as to the unspeakable things that were happening not so far away. And one of the students in class sent me this from Ecclesiastes today, it's Ecclesiastes 9.12, because we're all having trouble processing 
It says, for man also doesn't know his time, as the fish that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in a snare. Even so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly on them. And she says, this is the answer I can cope with today. We just don't know. We don't know when our time is. The good news is when it is our time that we have the hope of a better resurrection than the resurrection that awaits the wicked, which is only temporary, long enough to judge. And then for the wicked, there's everlasting torment. But for the righteous, we do have a better hope. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Maybe look at, there's a hopeful aspect to approach this with. And so that's that's why I wrote the, the newsletter, because at this point, I think we do need hope. I know that we, we have grieving families of those who were killed, but we also have around 200 families that are basically holding their breaths right now because they're, they have a family member or more, sometimes whole families who are hostages. So what hope can we give? I, we just go back to the scripture. We go back to the word. And I think that's where the comfort can lie. If it lies anywhere, the, the comfort is going to be in the word. And we know that Psalms are often a great comfort. And if, if you say, well, what can I do for them? Of course you can pray. But praying psalms, both for the living and for the dead, that's very important because when you look at the grief, the what tortured King Saul, you know, there was a, a, a spirit that would come periodically and trouble him. And, and young David would go in and play his heart, play psalms, and it would drive those spirits away. And so when we're grieving, when we're worried, when we're anxious, often either praying the psalms or listening to the psalms set to music, uh, that can bring a relief and a comfort. You know, that may not be the exact time to read the hellfire and damnation <laughs> coming maybe from one of the prophets. The better selection at that point might be the psalms because they do give comfort and hope. So with that in mind, let's take a look here. I'm going to pull up my newsletter. And if you have it, you might want to print it off or, or just pull it up on your phone, whatever you're looking at, and just follow along with me. But in the newsletter, I made the point that it feels very helpless, especially now that we're on this side of the Atlantic now. At least when we were dodging rockets, we were participating in some weird way. There were problems to solve, things to do, definitely prayers to pray fervently. But now that we're home, now, I didn't anticipate the feeling of helplessness. Sometimes when you're in a problem, it's there's a little more comfort there than having to watch the problem from the outside. But I made the point in the newsletter, we're not really outsiders in the sense that we can participate. It may not feel as satisfying as maybe, you know, putting on a uniform and suiting up and reporting for duty or preparing meals for soldiers or support personnel. Sometimes it feels like when we pray, it's something that's less important or it's something that, well, you know, I don't really know what to do, so we'll do this. Like it's the last thing on the list that's actually helpful when really it's the first thing on the list that can be helpful. It is the most powerful thing we can do in the face of adversity. And especially since we're facing an adversity that, that's horrific. I mean, what is ahead is still, I believe, way overshadowed by the horror of what's a couple of weeks behind us. Those are images we're never going to forget, and nor should we. We should remember what the adversary 
wants to do to believers, what, how the adversary is making war with the creator himself and the links he's willing to go to, to, uh, I mean, it's just like with your kids. If somebody wants to get to you, if they hurt your kids, it hurts you. It's the same thing with our father in heaven. If you hurt his kids, it's, he feels that he suffers with us. And so taking vengeance on the people of Adonai is one way to basically strike at the Holy One. What they don't really understand at this point is, yes, he does have the ability and the willingness to strike back, like we said, in his time. There will be a time and a place for everything. And so we've been doing a, a series called Footsteps of Messiah, seeing we, we recognize a few years ago, yes, we have entered into a strange time here. Uh, we are in a time of tribulation in our generation. And so we started looking at certain prophetic things as indications that the footsteps of Messiah are closing in, that they're getting closer and closer. And the primary text is the Song of Songs. And at this point, we've reached chapter four. And the text that we're working with is, your neck is like the Tower of David, built with layers of stones, on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the warriors. And as we studied that passage, we saw how those shields each represent a generation of the righteous remnant. These are the, the spiritual warriors in each generation. And in their generation, they protect the covenant. And they don't do that simply through taking up, you know, bow and spear and gun and cannons and things. But they're also spiritual warriors. These are the, the, the prophets, those who are prayer warriors, those who can evangelize, worship, uh, teach, have a gift of hospitality. Uh, those families who are rearing godly children, all of this is part of being a warrior and being part of hanging the shield of your generation on the Tower of David. And so this righteous remnant, these are the ones who have been engaged in spiritual service in their generations. And what we have to understand is because it talks about how these shields are layered, that there's layers of stones and then they're hung in those layers, is that each shield represents a generation. We know the promise extends to a thousand generations. So a thousand is the symbolic number of the fullness of generations. Doesn't mean it's the literal number, it's the symbolic number. So these, these thousand shields, each shield represents the righteous remnant of its generation. And what you notice about the way it's described is that the shields aren't just scattered all over the tower. They're not just thrown up there. Well, I think it would look nice here. Or I think it would look nice there. No, there's there's an order. There's an arrangement. And so each layer of shield is resting up on the foundation of a shield that came before it. And, and this is you know the, the greatest argument against having what we call a generation gap. Traditionally, it seems that the next generation doesn't really understand the previous one. And the previous one doesn't really understand the next one. And, and there's a gap in there. But it's it's not intended for the gap to be there. It's intended for one generation to do what they're called to do in their generation so that the next generation can build upon it. And if this generation didn't do what they did, then there's nothing for this generation to come and, and rest upon 
their work as as they contributed, right? And so the heroes of one generation, they, they must do what they must do so that the next generation will be able to do what they must do. Each generation is connected to the one that preceded it. And it's connected to those who will follow it. We we tend to, you know, look back at mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, and, and think about building on their foundation. But often we fail to look forward and realize the next generation is going to be building on what we do. And in the same way that maybe we were a little hypercritical of the previous generation and their shortcomings, maybe what we don't consider is they fulfilled their calling, just like it says in the Torah portion this week. Noah was righteous in his generation. You don't compare him to Abraham. You don't compare him to Jeremiah. You only compare Noah to his own generation. And so often that's the trouble. We start comparing our generation and how much we think we know and how much we think we've achieved. And we might scorn the generations that have gone before. And that's exactly wrong. Instead, we look at those previous generations and say, well, why didn't they do this, this, this? Well, they were frozen in their generation. They might have been forward thinkers, but they were still frozen in their generation and what was possible in their generation. And they did what they needed to do. And so we have no cause to be arrogant and to forget what went before, because if we forget those things, then we'll forget the things they had to overcome. We say, oh, these horrible things happened back here. Well, yes, they did. But look, each generation overcame something, overcame something. And so rather than point the finger and say, they let this happen, why not point the finger and say, this was happening, but look who rose up. The righteous in their generation rose up and dealt with it. Therefore, there's going to be something in our generation that we're going to be doing a terrible job at. So we have no reason to be arrogant. We're going to be called to rise up and to deal with that horrible thing, our courage is going to be called upon in the exact same way. And we don't want the next generations to look back at us and say what cowards they were. There were so few that even rose up, say, against Nazi Germany. All right, big mistake. Do we want to forget that? Or do we want to remember, you know what, it's probably going to happen in our generation too. What am I doing? How am I speaking up in my generation? How am I being counted as one of the courageous ones. How how am I going to be counted as the shield of my generation? And here's a a quote from Midrash Rabbah to that particular verse. And I love the play on words here because we know Yehoshua or Joshua, the short form of his name is Yeshua, just like Elishua was called Elisha. Well, the short form of Yehoshua is Yeshua. And here's what it says. It says, all the thousands and myriads that crossed the Jordan River and whom I shielded from the Canaanite kings, I shielded only in the merit of the one who came for a thousand generations, Yehoshua. Yehoshua came for a thousand generations in his generation, but Yeshua came for a thousand generations in his generation. And he says, and it is not you alone who depended upon the merit of Yeshua, but all the mighty men, for anyone who rises and rules and prevails over his evil inclination, such as Moses in his time, David in his time, Ezra in his time, their whole generation depends on their merit. And so there is something you can do as an individual in your time. And what you'll find out, you say, well, I'm just one person. Those were just single people, single people. 
And it says their whole generation depended upon them. The whole shield of their generation. Every person who is part of that righteous remnant, your whole generation depends upon what you do. You are not unimportant. So don't ever think of prayer as being, well, like consolation prize, since I can't do something with my hands to help. It's not a consolation prize. You're a mighty warrior. You're a hero. <coughs> you were connected to the previous generations, and those who follow will be connected to you. So can we do something today that would honor the deceased that we lost on October 7th? Or any other person you might be thinking of. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a grandparent. Is there anything you can do to honor them without making the mistake of going into ancestor worship or you know ancestor idolatry? <coughs> and there's much of that. We don't want to do that. But scripture teaches us how we can, how we can honor those who are deceased and can no longer do things for themselves. You know, life is about obeying and serving the Father. These are the things of life. And those who are deceased, they can no longer do those deeds of life now that they've crossed over. But is there something the living can do even now that would benefit them? And that's that's where the big question comes in. Like I say, a lot of times it's it's how we were brought up to look at certain passages of scripture that just kind of closes us off to other scriptures that I think shed a lot of light. In Judaism, there is a practice like when your parents pass away that the children will say a prayer called the mourner's kaddish. The mourners Kaddish. Um, they'll say this prayer every day for 11 months in honor of the departed parent, or that it might be a close relative. And the prayer is just their way of kind of being like Job and saying, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, that's not the text of the prayer, but it's a way of acknowledging the sovereignty of Adonai over all things pertaining to life and death, like the passage that I read to you. 1 Samuel 2.6, it says, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. So let's take that. We know that, that life and death are in his hands, but is there something that is still in our hands? And in fact, even after we cross over, even after we are deceased, is there anything that can be done on our behalf? And that's why I say, for right now, just move salvation off the table. Let's make an assumption. We're talking about somebody that, who is counted in the kingdom. Right? We're not questioning their salvation at this point. That's another day, another time. I want to look at a, a kind of a curious statement that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It seems like they get the really good stuff, the Corinthians. They must have been a wild bunch. Uh, but we know that Paul was a Pharisee from the school of Hillel. We know that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, which set them apart from the Sadducees. And so Paul will have been educated in all the oral traditions, methods of interpretation, passed down through the school of the Pharisees. This is actually where we get the formal doctrine of resurrection. The Pharisees gave us that. So you, and the, the school of Hillel, which he was from, 
uh, also emphasize that it, if a non-Jew wants to convert, if he wants to join himself to the covenant of Israel with, you know, taking on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as uh, their forefathers in faith, they can do it. Um, not the school of Shammai, but the school of Hillel that Paul was part of. So you can see why he would have been a perfect apostle to the Gentiles, because he was already grounded in a belief that the Gentile could be brought into the covenant. But he makes this uh, strange statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 29. He says, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? Now, like I say, if if you've kind of been brought up and said, well, you know, once you die, everything's over. Uh, nothing else can be done for you, um, which there's also um, some other doctrines out there um, from older church traditions, something called purgatory and, you know, basically praying them out of hell, I guess, or purgatory. And I think probably where they got that doctrine might have been based on this right here. Maybe they picked up on this uh, in the early centuries. But I think what Paul might have been referring to was, is maybe the, the origins of what evolved into this modern practice of praying the mourner's Kaddish for a close relative, for a mother or father. And what's odd about it is that Paul just seems to take for granted that those who are raised from the dead can benefit from a specific action taken on their behalf by a living person. And the particular action he's talking about here, it's, it's translated as baptized. But of course, in the Jewish tradition, it would have been called a mikvah, an immersion, a mikvah. And most church people are familiar with a mikvah or a baptism. Um, when they are saved, when they come to faith in Messiah Yeshua, there, there is an immersion involved to show that they're a new creation. It's a new birth for them. They have a new mommy and daddy. Uh, they have Abraham and Sarah, right? But there's all sorts of other reasons to be immersed, to have a mikvah. And of course, the Christian baptism derived from this and as you, especially as you're reading in the book of Leviticus, you find there's lots of reasons to be immersed, um, which there's intentionality to it. You, you need to know why you're being immersed, which is why I believe the Christian baptism uh, emerged the way that it did, because as they immerse, they're, they're making a specific statement of intentionality that I've come to faith in Messiah Yeshua. But there's various purity rituals. Um, especially as it concerns uh, purification from bloods, body fluids, and so forth, childbirth, things like that, um, preparing for the feasts, preparing to go up and to serve in the temple, to take a sacrifice to the temple, depending on the level of holiness that you intended to go into, it might call for an immersion purification, say, from leprosy, from sarat, these sorts of things involved in intentional immersion. Now, we know that as human beings, we cannot save another human being, especially after death. Can we proclaim the gospel? Sure. Can we witness their immersion? 
Sure, but we don't save that soul. And after that soul has died, we know for sure we can't save that soul, right? We, we don't, what can we do? Just like the, the passage I read, it's only Adonai who can kill or resurrect. We know the father can't save the son. Abraham couldn't make Ishmael live before El Shaddai. Isaac couldn't save Esau. Um, the Psalm, Psalm 49, 8, it says, a man can't save his brother. Deuteronomy, it says, see now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So we, we know that, no, we don't have any power to save a person before or after death. So what is leading Paul to tell the Corinthians that the, it's almost like he expects them to already understand that there is something you can do to benefit a deceased person who's already dead? How do you benefit them? Uh, you know, one of the wonderful things you'll see in Israel is an organization that'll come in where maybe there's been a bombing or, or some of the horrible things that that were done down in the, the villages on October 7th, where bodies are so badly burned, dismembered, scattered from explosives. They'll go in and they'll gather every single piece down to using tweezers and they'll sort through that because that, that person needs to be buried as whole as possible. And that organization, it would translate into, um, in English, true kindness, chesed shalomet. Because a deceased person, they can't do a thing for themselves. There's nothing they can do to pull that body back together. And it's the only home they've ever known is their body that they've, they've now been removed from. And so this organization, they go in and they gather up and they care for those pieces until burial, identification. And they do for this, the deceased what the de deceased cannot do for himself or herself. And they say, this is true kindness. When you do something for someone that there's not a possibility in the world you could get paid back for it, that's true kindness. Think of the Leveret marriage in scripture, where if one man dies childless, then one of his deceased brothers could marry his widow and raise up a child that would carry on the deceased man's name, even though he didn't father the child. And this was an act of true kindness, because how can this dead brother ever pay him back for raising up a child to his name? He can't. He's already dead. But here was my question when I when I really started thinking about the lover at marriage, because it, it did have to do with what Paul's saying, like there is something that can be done after the person is dead. For the, the man who dies childless, there's still something that can be done for him. Their question is going to be, what is it that's being done? You can raise up a child in his name. That can still be done after he's deceased. Somehow, this is going to improve the life of the deceased, which has already been cut short. And so when you look at leveret marriage, it's hinting that the son's life is directly tied to a deceased father's name. He's now becoming an extension 
of this deceased father who didn't father him. And so the question would be, if there's no hope at all after this man is dead, what does it matter? Why would you need to do that if there's no hope? If he's deceased, you can't add anything to it. That That's kind of a puzzle. Because we know any good things, any works of righteousness that we do, because Yeshua is our righteousness, and he ordained these things for us to walk in, we can do those things. And in, in the parables, of course, there's a difference between being saved and the rewards of the kingdom for what you do after you're saved. Two different questions. Once we die, we know we can't add any more good deeds. We can't add any more acts of obedience after we die in terms of having that become part of the reward, the eternal reward. Those things can only be done before. And maybe this is the link. Right? Maybe that's the link. You've got two generations. We've talked about these generational shields. How often in scripture, especially in Yeshua's mouth, do you hear him using the example of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to teach the resurrection? He uses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to teach resurrection from the dead to the Sadducees who did not believe in a resurrection. And he actually uses uh, the Torah. He quotes from the Torah to prove to the Sadducees that the righteous souls of the patriarchs and the matriarchs are still alive. They might be dead, but they're still alive. In Mark 12, 26, he says, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In other words, they're not dead. Their bodies may have decayed, but their souls live on. So, no, we cannot save another human being. We cannot resurrect another human being. But is there anything that lives on after that human being's death that can be evidence that that person was faithful? that that person was valuable. Yes, your offspring. Your offspring are the ones in the natural world who are probably the most willing to do good deeds in prayer, that are a testimony to your life, that are an honor to your life. No, you don't need to get somebody's name tattooed on your arm to remember them. What they would prefer that you do is acts of obedience to the Father. They would prefer that you pray to the Father because each time you do an act of righteousness, an act of obedience from the heart, each prayer that you pray from the heart, not only is it improving your relationship with the Holy One, you are actually enriching that parent's afterlife. You can enrich the lives of your father and mother of the deceased. When you mindfully do things in their honor, you are like the living proof that the deceased fulfilled his or her calling as a shield in their generation. And this is why I think Yeshua and the apostles are constantly reminding us, we're the descendants of Abraham. 
We are the descendants of Sarah above. We are evidence of their righteousness in every generation. Well, shorten that a bit. We know people who are deceased. What can we do to enrich their lives? We can live lives of honor in their honor. We can live lives that honor the Holy One in their honor. Because we know good deeds can't save us. They're what we do because we're saved. But we do know that good deeds follow us into the kingdom. You can't get away from them. Revelation 14, 13 says they will follow after you. Because, see, once you're deceased, you can't, you know, Yeshua said there's a day coming when no man can work. You can continue in the work that you started in the millennium, but there's really no new work to be done. You're simply filling up what's already been begun. So knowing that we can't start new works once we are deceased, how can our lives in the afterlife be enriched? Well, it's through our descendants, through those who we influenced. When we can no longer do these heartfelt good deeds for the sake of heaven, who can? Descendants. Whether they're children, whether they're spiritual children, friends, people who knew you. It may not be your literal children. I mean, look at the Leverett marriage. The father of this child is not who is going to collect the rewards, we might say, of having righteous offspring. Instead, this child is going to be dedicated to the memory of the deceased father. So he's he's not, he's close. If he's a close relative, they would try to get a close relative to do it. So it'd be close as possible, but still, this is not this child's father. But yet it is this child's father. Because now he's being raised up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord in the memory of the deceased. He's being fostered by a near relative in the good name of the deceased. And that's why it's so generous to raise up a child for a deceased relative. Because the, the good things, the righteousness of this child, the living evidence of this child is to the influence of the father. And in this case, the father is already dead. But yet now he's being credited with a righteousness even after he's dead. And so the one who raised up the child in the name of a deceased brother, that is so generous because the good deeds that this child do won't be credited to him. He can have other children. But the good stuff, he's saying, let this go to my deceased relative. He can't do anything for himself at this point, but yet this child is going to be evidence of the righteousness, of the value of my deceased brother, even though I suspect there's still going to be reward for that, that foster parent. I still think they're going to be rewarded for that, that selflessness and that generosity. And I think the same principle can apply when we take people under our wing. When we start nurturing them and mentoring them in the word, even if they're not ours by blood, if we will be spiritual fathers and mothers like Paul was to Timothy, then even after we're deceased, even after we move on, 
then the the righteous remnant in that next generation that we influenced for good, that we influenced for the sake of heaven, that we influenced to worship Adonai, we can still enjoy that after we're deceased. Because remember, the rich man still knew what his brothers were doing up there. He still had an awareness of what's going on in the, we might say the real world, which I would say the real world is more the parable and the real world is the one we can't see. So again, it's if the righteous deeds of the living are built on the faithfulness of the previous generations, that just blows this very popular narrative that's going around that says there's nothing to be good that that's learned or, or uh, benefited from previous generations. It's like every generation that came before the latest one were just a bunch of deadbeats and and they weren't worth anything and they're not worth remembering, just tear down everything they did. And then the, the new generation wants to see themselves as the saviors of the world, like they're the only virtuous generation. And they're ignoring all the sacrifices and that steady progress of the righteous remnant. I mean, this goes back, I mean, people who rebuilt, you know, after the flood, who rebuilt after the Tower of Babel, there's always been a righteous remnant ready to hang a shield on the Tower of David. They walked in faith. So no generation is independent of another. Each generation can thank the previous ones for any accomplishments they make. And so as we live in our generation, we can live in honor of those who went before us and understand that we're actually the living evidence of their faithfulness and of the faithfulness of Yeshua. Because remember, it says he's the one who came for a thousand generations. Yeshua is the proof of the righteous remnant in each generation. But when the deceased can look down and they see us living lives of honor before the Father, living lives of devotion to the Father, living lives of obedience to the word, they share. They share in that, in those good deeds that can follow after us. We become part of the, the good deeds that come behind them. See, they, they couldn't do those things ahead. But because of what they invested, they're going to see good deeds coming in behind them that they didn't actually do. They just laid the foundation for it to happen. So I say yes. For those who were deceased, for those who were slaughtered on October 7th, and even as we, we pray for the hostages and their families, what can we do to bring their remembrance before the Father on the front lines? The soldiers who are putting their lives in harm's way, what can we do to bring them to remembrance before the Father? What can we do for the, the previous generations? that have gone before us, the righteous remnant of those, those shields hanging on the Tower of David, for our mother and father who might be deceased, or grandma and grandpa who might be deceased, they can no longer add good deeds. But they can watch as we do. And so they need not have died in vain. I know Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, all's vanity. They didn't die in vain. Because the sum of everything is fear out of line and keep his commandments. What we can do in their honor to, to generate an enrichment 
for them in the afterlife. Deeds that might follow after them is to say, you know what, this person influenced me for good. This person brought me closer to the Father. This person motivated me to read the word. This person motivated me to obey the word. This person motivated me to become much more serious about my Shabbat observance. This person motivated me to become much more serious about telling my mother and father I love them each day, whatever it might be. This affected all of us. Has it affected you in a good way as well? Not just mourning and grief, but has it also motivated you to to grab for the Father even harder? Have you prayed more? Have you said, I love you more? Did you study the Torah portion harder this week? That's good. Prayer is a good deed. Obeying the word is a good deed. Loving one another is a good deed. And we can comfort the dead with our obedience, doing good deeds for the sake of heaven, because those deeds follow into the kingdom. And you know, I use the rich man and Lazarus as an example because it, it's such a great example. One of the things that the rich man was tortured by in Sheol was realizing his living brothers had not repented. They're living the same life he did. That's a torment he didn't have to go through. He was tormented enough. I believe he was experiencing exactly what Lazarus experienced in life. Because, you know, as he's, you know, Father Abraham is explaining this to him, he says, well, you know, in that life, this is what you had. And that's what Lazarus had. But now it's switched. I think that's kind of what Sheol is. You are tormented by experiencing those places where you didn't live to love your neighbor as yourself. You didn't live to obey the commandments of the Father. And that's a torture. He says, okay, now you can experience, you can see what what you lacked. But there was a torture that he didn't have to go through. What if those living brothers had seen his death and said, you know what? We need to repent. We need to start praying. We need to start obeying the word. We need to start being hospitable. We need to start being charitable to the poor and the sick. We need to start binding up the wounds of the suffering. We need to quit walking by those who suffer. Because had he seen that, had he been aware of their repentance, and they're drawing closer to the Father, that would not have been a torture to him. Because that was one of the things, other than a drop of water on his tongue, (laughs) which he didn't have. Had he seen their repentance, there's that much less to be tortured by, that he could have made an impact on his brothers and he didn't. But what if he had looked up and said, wow, something I did in my life is still doing good today. He wouldn't have had to see his loved ones repeating his mistakes of disobedience. So if you want to torture somebody who's gone on before, just keep sinning. Don't pray. Be rude. Don't love people. That's more torture than they're already in. But if you know you have a, a righteous mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, if a loved one has been has deceased, maybe these people we've never even met, but we're drawn together because we consider ourselves joined to Israel. These were our family that were slaughtered mercilessly. This is our family that's held hostage. What can we do? When we do good deeds, and by good deeds, I mean we obey the word. Obey the Father, love your neighbor. It's evidence that their lives mattered. Those who were slaughtered 
mattered. They were human beings. And what happened to them did affect us. To those who personally knew them, I know they had a good impact on their lives. To those who know of them, it's had an impact on our lives. We've prayed more. We've loved more. And here's the thing. They're still alive. It's not he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is the God of those who are deceased. It's not like they did matter. They still matter. Their lives influenced us. They influenced the survivors. And now more than ever, we want to serve out on I with a humble heart. What greater thing could you do to honor their memories? What greater thing can you do to bring them comfort as they are awaiting the resurrection of their bodies? What greater thing could you do to comfort their families? I don't think there's anything greater you can do then live out those righteous years of their lives that were cut short because, see, now they can't. Now they're waiting for the deeds that will follow after them. And we who are alive are the only ones who can do the good deeds that will follow after them and enrich their rewards in the kingdom. So no, we can't save them. Not a question. But are there things we can do now that will make their next phase of life better? I think the answer is yes. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.